the way that we're designed is to live from our souls and our souls require our attentive care. That means that we have to really trust that our soul knows what it's talking about. Our desire comes from that place. Our joy comes from that place. Our calling comes from that place. Um, Our sense of sacrifice comes from that place. Like all of the things that we feel like we need to do to be faithful to who we are as people, it comes from that knowing. That all comes from this place of belovedness that we are given freely. Welcome, fellow traveler, to the Tent Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social, and political imagination. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Tent Talks Theology podcast. Uh, I'm your host in this series around interpretation and translation. We're on episode number three so far, if you remember the first episode with Adam, and then we followed up with, uh, with Dr. Neil Douglas Klotz around Aramaic and the Lord's Prayer and all that kind of good stuff. And as I was making my short list, if you will, for people to talk to around translation and interpretation, uh, who I would want to come on and who's had an impact on my life, one of the names that immediately came to the top was Daniel Scheuer. And much like my connection with, uh, with Stephen, and I promise I do listen to more than just the Nomad podcast, uh, but it's been a, a real resource for me to, to, for, from a challenging standpoint, from a perspective standpoint, to have uh, these motives, these, these uh, motifs, I should say, challenged and blown up for lack of a better word, in, in what I would consider a very beneficial way. Uh, I talk about the four episodes. There was the, the one about Christian nationalism with Brian Zahn, and of course Stevens was a follow to that, and then Apophatic Theology with Janet Williams, and then uh, Alexander John Shy and Quadratos, who's going to come and be part of our dualism series when I do that here in the future. But the one that I always think about is kind of like the, the 4.1 or the one that's like right after that, that, that hey, this is one that I really impacted me. It was the one that Danielle was on. And we're going to get to the to the to the gist of it, as I'd mentioned, it's a little bit around the Hebrew, a little bit around the Old Testament, um, where the where kind of this translation ha- aspect happened. Uh, but at the same time, the nice thing about Danielle was I, I felt a bit of a connection on a personal level. So when she said in in such a in such a loving way that her dad was a white boy from West Texas, I kind of like was like, well, I'm I'm a, I'm a I'm a white boy from Texas, so I, or I connected with her, and she said her mom was Lebanese, and I, you know, I kept seeing. I know it's just more timing, but everybody that kept coming across in this world that was from Lebanon or had a Lebanese background was just these amazing people, and so I was like, oh, okay, check, check, I'm, I'm with it, and then, you know, just the, the delivery in her past, and she, or not her past, but what she's done as, a, as a spiritual leader, as a former pastor, and as an author and a speaker. I just felt like it would really do um, do the series justice and provide value for you, the listener, to kind of hear some of these things as we push the ideas and what maybe that didn't mean, what we thought it meant. And not just from an accuracy standpoint, but then what kind of framing back to looking at something like what Adam was telling us about. When we reframe, man, what does that do? And how does that impact us? And how do we, how do we react to that? And so... And it's not to put any pressure on Danielle to, hey, can you just go ahead and in a short period of time, just rehash the Old Testament for us and make Hebrew make sense and this small little thing and do it in 30 minutes. Uh, it's not quite that exact, but there are some elements we, that we can't wait to talk to her about. I'm going to give her a chance to introduce herself a little bit more and then uh, we'll get started. But with that, Danielle, thank you so much for coming to the tent and being part of this series.
Yeah, thanks for having me. So, so if you could give us, uh, I'd, I'd love for you to give us a little bit about, you know, tell us a little bit more about yourself as you'd like. And then where I wanted to kind of start, as we talked about a little bit before we started, your Genesis story, instead of starting in the actual Genesis, which is where we, which is where I kind of got my connection with you, but uh, with, with your childhood, with you growing up around, I know a little bit about, uh, you know, your, your mother's lineage and some of your experiences there, and that your dad came from a kind of a different area, and how, how coming from these, two, having these two perspectives, different perspectives, how that impacted your interpretation, your translation of things and how you saw stuff. And so, yeah, if that works for you, we'd love to get started there. Yeah. Um, well, I am also a girl from West Texas. I grew up in um, Midland and oil country. So I'm very familiar <laughs> with all that. There's football and oil and that's pretty much it. Um, sometimes good mesquite barbecue. <laughs> and um, my mom is Lebanese. She's first generation raised American. So my grandfather came over when he was 12 through Ellis Island um, my grandmother came over when she was 17 to marry my grandfather, who was 37. Um, it was a somewhat arranged, somewhat they were uh, getting together behind their parents' back to try to choose um, mates that they liked for each other. Um, but my family on my mom's side is um, Druze, uh, Lebanese. And so the Druze religion goes way, way back. And um, it's very insular. It's kind of like Judaism in the sense that it is both a religion and an ethnicity. So that gets kind of complicated. You can be <laughs> ethnically Druze and maybe not religiously Druze. Um, there's a really strong culture around it. I remember um, as a little girl, I went to Druze conventions, but it was kind of awkward because my mom broke the main rule, which is you marry a Druze man. And she married a white boy from West Texas, as you know. <laughs> so she broke that lineage um, of those thousands of years. And, uh, so we're sort of Druze, but not really. So, um, so, but I grew up being really close to my grandparents and, um, my grandfather in particular, you know, the Druze are very, um, sort of philosophical and deist and open. And he had Khalil Gibran books on his, um, on his, bookshelf. And I remember having like deep conversations with my grandfather. I was always kind of a nerdy kid, you know, and wanted to ask the big questions and we would get into great conversations. And I, I loved seeing, uh, the way that they saw the world. And then of course, you know, I was in a small West Texas town and we sometimes went to the Southern Baptist church and that was just real different. <laughs> so I saw who God was there. And then to make things more complicated, I went to Episcopal school and so I went to daily chapel with incense and communion at a round altar. And um, I actually credit that to being why I have faith today, because that's the place where I think I met God, um, maybe most fully for who I am uniquely as a person. But all of those things sort of collided to make me understand at a really young age that God is way bigger than sometimes we think. And I think that's just been a huge gift um, because it's helped me stay open to the fact that you know, because in my own family, God looked differently in my own experience as a young girl, God looked, could look a lot of different ways. It really helped me stay open to the fact that I probably don't know everything there is to know about this God, but I sure felt so close to God and just found has, I've always found God to be just the most fascinating. So it's not a surprise that I ended up, you know, getting a bunch of degrees and reading nerdy stuff and finding this to be a fun job. <laughs> yeah, so, so you come by it honestly. Well, so in the spirit of your grandfather, can you remember 
or you know, if it, not, maybe not a favorite story, but maybe an impactful story, or kind of something that your dad, or your granddad, uh, maybe it was more style or approach, or you know, in terms of that uh, translation interpretation side, that just kind of made you go, huh? It opened your eyes. Was there anything concrete that you could that come I up can't with? think of anything concrete, but I I think what I remember most about him is just how open he was. Like he was always willing to sort of hear things out, you know, and he was always like, well. I wonder about that, you know, and he had, he had this air of just assuming that there was more to know about something. I, yeah, that sort of epistemic humility, I guess, was sort of what I think even as a young child, I found to be so remarkable and um, refreshing. And there's something attractive about that to me. And so I hope that in, in some small way, I carry a little bit about, about that of him in me. Well, no, that, that makes, you know, actually, in terms of being profound or just impactful, no, it, it's so subtle things like that to be open. And because it's, it's, I mean, I saw that with my podcast way back. I saw, I mean, you see that with people. I think we're, we're a lot of a struggle in this area. Is it because it isn't open? It's because it's no, that is, that is what it means. And it only means that. And it can't mean anything besides that. And that's what starts to put those, those walls of anxiety, those walls of pressure to, you know, this is, okay, well, here it is. And, and stay on the balance beam and don't don't come off it. And so I think that no, that makes a lot of sense. So as you mentioned, you you got into so then you got your degrees and you got into it. And so you give us a little bit of idea of like when you went out into the world world and how that uh, you know in terms of interactions was it because uh, I know you put uh, you know former pastor former things like that and that you're now a spiritual leader. But maybe give us a little bit of context around uh, what those journeys are like from a, from an interpretation and translation aspect. Yeah, I, I actually went to um, undergrad thinking that I was going to be a lawyer. Uh, I thought I would just, you know, fight for the for the brokenhearted and like make the world a more just place. And then I went into Hebrew class. I actually um, argued to be as a freshman led into Hebrew class and they were like, oh, we don't do that. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, you will. <laughs> I'm going to for sure do that. Just sign me right up. Um, and then I went back and was really proud that I uh, did okay in the class. And so they let me stay. But um, that is really where my interpretation journey started. And um, I took Hebrew for four years, and I think it just, in the best way, expanded my understanding of what scripture was, because Hebrew's lovely, you know, it's poetic and big and a little confusing, and I love that there are words that could mean two different things that aren't remotely related to each other. <laughs> so you're like, oh, I, I can't think of an example, right? I was like, oh, it could be a cow or like blue, you know, and you're like, how is this one word, you know? Um, so you have to use context and, um, it was very relational and I don't know, people either love or hate it, but I, I just loved it. And so I really honestly thought I would just be an old Testament scholar for my life. I felt called into ministry, but I thought, you know, I don't know about church. Um, one of the downsides of the gift of seeing how big God is, is that when you go to church, you think, is this, are you serious? Like, is this the best we can do with the ineffable mystery of the divine? Like, are you joking? You know, so I kind of have always had a bit of a like Ugh, about church. So I thought it was pretty hilarious that I felt called into it. So I thought, well, maybe I'll just be an Old Testament professor and then that'll be the way that I live out my calling. Um, but then I stumbled into a group of people who were asking big questions about the future of theology. And I thought, oh, well, if we can do that, you know, um, let's do that. And then um, we kind of started asking questions about what it looks like to do church differently. And I thought, well, I just didn't know I was even able to ask that question of what would it look like if I put a church together the way I wanted to. Um, and so luckily, gosh, I got to do that. Um, I was the second pastor of a small um, independent church that we call, our, we call ourselves multi-denominational because we had one of everybody. 
Uh, we were definitely not non-denominational, which is another thing, which is fine. But we, yeah, we gathered together in a way that I think was intent on grappling with the scriptures. So we, I didn't preach uh, very often. I would preach on like Ash Wednesday, Easter, Pentecost. I tended tended to get a little preachy, um, but would try to have other voices because it would be done to have Pentecost just be one person for obvious theological reasons. But we would have discussions around the text every week. So I would, we would read scripture and then I would kick around some thoughts to get people going. And then it would be this conversation um, that we gathered around. And, you know, that's actually a pretty great way to do a faith community um, because what you find out is that there's a lot of stuff in the text that you didn't see and you sort of need other people to help you see those things. And so one of my favorite things is that it was so often that even though I was the one that had the MDiv and you know, the religion undergrad degree and thought about it all week and prayed about it all week. It was somebody else that had the truth bomb. And it was like, yes, that's so good. Thank you for saying that out loud for all of us to benefit from. So um, that was a good lesson too. So it's funny, it's a little bit of a precursor. So as I told you, um, a mutual friend of ours is coming on the next series with Richard Beck. And and part of our conversation is going to be around um, Church of Christ. And then I'm actually, I'm actually, our, the church we go to, the one I was risen on to and then didn't, and I'm now back, is going through this opportunity to kind of reestablish what church looks like, like literally right now. And this is part of the, part of that. So a little bit of foreshadowing, because that, that's a, that's a question, you know, like, and in, in, so many people kind of come up with these, they've, they've defined it based on, like you said, is it three songs and then an offering and then the communion and then 20 minutes for, you know, for, for a message. And then we wrap it up with two songs and that's church, right? Versus, well, like, is, is that church? Is that all? I mean, it can be that, right? It can be that. And then, and then you go back and look at, you know, people then how they come up with that. And it goes, this goes into where, well, over here, it says this, and over here, it doesn't say this. And I think they meant this over here. And then again, we end up having these problems and it works for a little bit, but in terms of, you know, how big God is. And I think that's such a brilliant way to put it that we're, we continue to try to keep these parameters on something that quite honestly is beyond what we, we can understand. And I know that especially last four or five years in, in conversations like this becomes this kind of go-to language of, oh, it's bigger than everything. But no, honestly, try to, I mean, just, just capitalizing the F and Father, is that enough to represent all that's divine? I, I think we can do, I think we can do better or, or, just, or, or provide more. Um, so, in, okay. So in the realm of that, uh, I'd love Hebrew, obviously, is, you know, is your language. And I, and I agree if, if you, you know, if you go back and listen to the episode before, uh, we got really into, you know, the, the Ruach and just that, you know, the embodiment of what that means and how that really kind of, because then it vibrates in your soul. And that was for me, the big kind of interpretation change of this disembodied kind of like, don't move your hands, don't act like, you know, don't maybe, you know, the spirit's supposed to be honest, but very, very subtle. No, very controlled, you know, don't go, don't start wiggling in the chair and act, act silly. But then to kind of move into that um, Hebrew, Aramaic, and, you know, not to limit it, but like that Middle Eastern embodiment aspect of how you express yourself. And to your point, how does Blue and Cow connect? And I think the brilliance of that is when you start looking at that and you go, well, wait a minute, if you really kind of open like your grandfather, open that mind, oh, well, if you, if you reframe it, like our, like our friend said, and like we were talking about, okay, those are related. They're not totally different, you know, in terms of, okay, so maybe, and then like you said, you have to contextualize it. That means you have to really understand all that's going on and not just the words and the order and how it may sound. Uh, so in the spirit of that, uh, you know, the where we always start is in the beginning, right? So so can you take us a little bit down that 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 Genesis journey of, 
uh, you know, the spirit of Matthew Fox and the spirit of, you know, original blessing and your work on that and that change of perspective from the original sin. Can you, can you take us down that road a bit? Yeah. I feel like I've been thinking about Genesis 3 for like as long as I can imagine. And so I, it's, it's really not lost on me that I just ended up writing a book about it because it was like, oh no, I've just had this question for just as long as I can remember. You know, I was five and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I think some of the things y'all are telling me about this story do not fit with how I'm feeling about what the story says. You know, um, I've told this story a number of times, but I remember being in um, Sunday school at my Baptist church. And I said, I don't, so why are we, why are we mad at Eve? Because isn't the reason we're at church today because we want to be like God? Like, what did she do wrong? I mean, that was clearly not the thing to say to that. She was like, sit on down. Yeah. But I was like, I don't understand what her, what about her desire was wrong that she wants to be like God. She didn't say she wanted to run the universe. She wanted to be in the image of God, you know, I, whatever, as a kid, I didn't see that and couldn't understand what the, anyway. So I guess since that moment, I've been thinking about this. And um, when I pastored a bunch of young adults who had big questions about what it looks like for them to follow Jesus in ways that might be different than the way that they grew up in their church, you know, they, I, what I noticed was that so many of them got really tripped up about how to trust themselves. That's really what it came down to is I desires are bad and I can't trust myself. And so what happens is that you just feel, cut off from all the um, intuitive knowing that God actually designed for you to have. And then you're stuck and you can't grow in spiritual maturity because the thing that helps you grow in spiritual maturity is off limits to you because it's not, you can't trust yourself. And I just thought after, you know, my own questions and then the practice that I've had in Hebrew, and I'm by no means a Hebrew scholar, but I spent a little bit of time in that world enough to know that there was some, you know, sniffs of difference um, in the way that we saw it and in the way it actually is in the, in the original language. It just felt so important to dive into that and to say, okay, we are assuming that there are things in Genesis three that aren't there. You know, Um, when we look at it, the fall, those two words, fall is not in there. It's not in there. There's no place in that story that says, oh, the, the human's nature changed forever because of this thing that happened, you know, and yet we've just decided that that's a thing that we believe. And it doesn't say they were immortal, but after this happened, they stopped being immortal and now they're mortal and God is so upset about it. And now he's got to send the son to like die. And it's all this, you know, all of these things are because of like, none of that's in there. When we realize that we are putting our assumptions on Genesis three, gosh, it invites us to look at it again and say, well, okay, so what is there? One good way to do that is to think about what our Jewish siblings have been thinking about this story long before we came around and came up with this concept of original sin, which is like way down the historical chain of, of knowing, right? Like way later, did we come up with all this stuff and they've had this story for way longer. And um, if you ask them, of course, they would say, yes, no, we don't see that. We don't see original sin as a thing at all. We don't understand what you guys are talking about. Um, and funnily enough, my Muslim friends all say the same thing. They're like, yeah, we don't get why you Christians do that with this story. We, what, what is, what's that about for you? And I'm like, listen, I don't know. <laughs> um, we just assume that we know what that story is saying. So it just takes so much. And I think sometimes it just takes time to step away from it so that we come back with fresh eyes and realize that much of what we think is happening in that story isn't. And what if it's just a story about human nature 
and about how at some point we grow up and we have questions and we rebel and we question authority and that that is maybe not even bad. It's just a thing. It's ju- it just is. And it's part of growing up and um, that this death to our innocence and naivete is a necessary sacrifice for us to become adult human beings. And if we are to be people who pursue wisdom, it's required of us to make that sacrifice and to realize, oh my goodness, I can do beautiful things in the world and I can do terrible things in the world. And I'm going to probably do both, you know, and how do I come to terms with that reality in myself? And then how do I come to terms with that in the world as it is? And the mess that that is when a whole bunch of people are walking around with these dueling um, propensities for good and evil. This is where wisdom comes in and discipleship, you know? So just to kind of read that, not reset, but to kind of build on that from a from a foundational standpoint, subtle, but I think really important detail was, and it was the first break in the wall, if you will, on my side of it, when you started talking about just the word ha'adam and how everybody that's ever heard the Genesis story, even if you don't want anything to do with religion, Christianity or otherwise, Adam and Eve, we all know that's, and Adam, God created Adam and Eve came later. That's been the narrative over and over again. And so listening to you talk about well, no, that's actually not what Hadam translates into, and that wasn't. And, and changing that context of the story from from God breathing humanity from the dirt into life, and beginning with this non-gendered essence of humanity, and then from there creating male and female. And it, it, correct me when I'm wrong. From a, a Hebrew, but the Ish and Isha, I believe, are the two yes, words. Yes, that's right. And that, and that. So, so to me, unpacking that and saying, well, if God just created human in this like almost mannequin type versus this, and you kind of have the, the background that I do. Oh, God created this boy, uh, Adam. <laughs> right. this, is his, this is his guy, you know, they're bros. They're now, not, not, not to simplify, but to make it like, it started <laughs> yes. with this relationship first. And then, hey, you seem like you could use a friend, you know? And then he created this friend. And then somewhere in amongst all that, he said, don't do something, which kind of, to your point, like in my head, I'm going, well, if you, if you program software to act a certain way, and then it does exactly what you program it to do. To get mad at the software seems a little bit odd to me, <laughs> right? Right. When, right? when you can take a step back, like you said, before they just kind of assume, oh, you know, they made it. Okay. I can understand people making a mistake and not doing what they wanted to. But the idea of inferring that God was clueless and going, I don't understand what's going on here. And then to compound that anxiety of, to then add the anger and fear and frustration and this super high level responsibility that now not only do, does God have to rectify that, but at this ultimate price of killing his own child, in a sense. And that's the narrative going on in your head of terms. That's where your main message of church is. And we sit around and go, well, no wonder there's a neurosis. If you really take that, kind of, I'm not clinical, but in a sense, you know, you're, you're, you're accessing or, or, or rationalizing what's going on. Well, no wonder it's so neurotic. No wonder it's so just kind of, ang- you know, Jesus, because you, you put Jesus on the cross. Oh, and by the way, if you don't get saved and you and everybody else you don't save, none of them are going to heaven and just the ones that have and everybody's crap anyway. What, in, from a framing, going back to kind of that framing standpoint, and that that's the, if that's the narrative going on in your head, if that's the, I understand this now. And then when, so when you said that and it's like, well, that's not just a, another way to say that. That's, you're wiping that slate clean in a sense. And then, and then you compound it with, of all the Abrahamic religions, nobody in Islam reads it that way. Nobody in Judaism reads that way. And the majority of Christianity, because of the Eastern Orthodox, none of them think about it that way either. And then it's like, well, 
how much of a really how much less and not because we're doing this for anxiety but how much of a greater connection to the divine or the potential of the divine would there be to know that god created us um and knew this and it was a coming of age and yes when you're no longer kind of like the paul you're no longer a child so as you're we know children we protect them we that becomes more relatable like yeah you're not ready for that yet but as when you get there i don't know when that moment is but there's going to be a transition a transformation into this world, into this next step. And it's okay, because guess what? That's what I, that's part of the reason I made you, was so that you can go through this and experience all these things and be capable of the good and the bad and realize it's neither. It's 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 the experiences that transformation you're allowed to go through. So so in the spirit of that, as as you kind of started to recognize that and as you start to share that with others, as that light goes off, because at the same time that's wow, now you're resetting now you're setting the foundation. Oh, it, it can be a bit like drinking from the fire hose. So, so how do you how do you help people in that context to kind of help believe it and not just think it? Well, I do think that's where prayer comes in, right? And so, um, I am a firm believer in contemplative prayer being one of the best places for us to really ground ourselves bodily in that knowing. Um, and it just takes time. The longer, the longer and the more, the stronger that you believe the original sin piece, it will require that much more compassion and gentleness and patience um, as you unlearn it, because that doesn't happen overnight. You know, we can have the light bulb go off in our heads, but to get that to get that knowing into our bodies and our lives is just not something that happens in, a, in the blink of an eye. We don't want to undermine those moments where we think, oh my gosh, I'll never see this differently again. Cause those are huge, but that's just like step one, <laughs> this very long path to start living in the way that is being revealed to you. And so um, for me, I think contemplative prayer is just the surest best way to do that. And what's lovely about that is that you simply are sitting with God. You don't say a single thing. And you, you imagine that you're in communion with God and that that's all that's being asked of you, that you just sit in the presence of God loving you and you just let that be the reality of things. And then, you know, probably your heart will bubble over and you will love God right back because that's sort of how it happens. But even if that doesn't happen in a, in a moment, it's fine because it's actually everything it needs to be if it's just God loving you. Um, and the minute that we start to let that in, um, from that bodily place, we really feel those shifts starting to happen. And I think then what happens after that is people do start to learn that they can trust themselves because the way that we're designed is to live from our souls and our souls, um, require our attentive care. And that means that we have to really trust that our soul knows what it's talking about. And so our desire comes from that place. Our joy comes from that place. Our calling comes from that place. Um, our sense of sacrifice comes from that place. Like all of the things that we feel like we need to do um, to be faithful to who we are as people, it comes from that knowing. And um, that all comes from this place of belovedness that we are given freely. And I, and I hear some of that. Uh, what, what, what I guess what I hear in that is it's okay to let go of these, uh, I don't want to call them idols, but kind of like, like old robes, old wineskins, you know, to use that. And, and you, you know, you mentioned Hebrew, you mentioned the language, you mentioned kind of how that embodies that. Can you take us in a little bit of a path on recognizing uh, from, from a linguistic standpoint, kind of like why that's important to allow for that, that openness of, of not just the word in terms of that concrete session, but like, like almost in that con contemplative prayer type aspect that, 
you know, ruach, you know, like it's just, it is that, and that's enough, you know, the messiah, you know, like, and, and kind of how you, maybe just personally, like, as you're in that moment, like just, and then, and then relating that to some of the language and allowing, and, and allowing that openness to happen. Can, can you talk about that maybe just a little bit and how you, how you kind of go through that and process it? Well, and I actually would say that you can get everything you need just from the word ruach, which means wind or breath or spirit, um, because I think that really that is the total that that holds all of it. You know, it's um, it's the place where when people talk about why meditation works for them, um, regardless of whether they're particularly religious or not. You know, to me, when I hear that, I'm like, you no, know, I know. I mean, it's you come back to the breath. <laughs> Um, there's something just deeply primal about that. And that expands beyond even our Christian faith. And it's just cultural, it's human. Um, and then again, if we take about, if we take that idea that we were formed from the dust on the ground, the soil, and it was only the breath of God that made us alive, then the time that we spend knowing that our breathing, our Ruach is the place of not only communion with God, but communion with ourselves, with our very nature, our essence. Um, I think that's profoundly impactful. And we, I'm sure it seems really trite that there's all these little apps now that are like, oh, take a moment to breathe. But it's like, I mean, that could sound trite, but try that, you know, (laughs) good luck. Like you can't do that without feeling changed. And, you know, then if you think about theologically, this idea of breath, you know, there's the, there are beautiful metaphors about the spirit being um, mutual breathing and how even God in the, in the Trinity expands in breath to make room for us and then sort of um, contracts in love to sort of affirm it and then expands again. And that it's the breath of God in God with God in the Trinity um, that there is this sort of mutual breathing, this, this sort of divine ruach in relationship that, that keeps the world alive, you know? I mean, it's way beyond just keeping us alive. It's keeping the world alive. So in the spirit of the world, uh, in terms of, um, I know it's, it's going to be anecdotal, but you mentioned friends from that are Muslim and Jewish and you know, different sects within Christianity or just life. But when you when you bring that kind of context up relative to the divine and what it means, can you give us some idea, uh, some examples of how that's kind of helped and maybe be beneficial or helped create synergy and connectivity with people that maybe don't quote unquote believe the same thing that you do, but actually do in a way? I actually think maybe the best way to put it is I think that's what peacemaking is. Um, or maybe I'll say it more particularly. I think if there is peacemaking, it begins also with Ruach, because what happens is you settle into the fullness of your, your humanity as it is, not as you wish it would be, not as you pretend it is to people who you want to think well of you, you know, um, and not smaller than you actually are either, right? Like not less gorgeous and beautiful and divine and, and dignified than you actually are. It is exactly as you are, both dignified and, you know, imperfect. And when you can get to that place of being with your own essence and self in that breath with yourself, what happens, and the Buddhists will tell you this, is that you find that you're actually way more capable of finding compassion for other humans, even if they're different than you, even if they're difficult, um, because you, you recognize there is a mutuality here and there is something beyond all of us that is at play. And whether we call that divine and they call it the universe or um, basic human goodness or whatever, uh, that's something we all agree on. 
And so I think if we care about peacemaking or reconciliation or reparations or justice, I'm not quite sure we can do that without grounding ourselves in the breath, you know, and I would say more particularly grounding ourselves in that belovedness if we're Christians, you know? Yeah. Cause, cause I mean, I don't want to discount, you know, repentance and reconciliation and what, what a sacrifice, you know, other, you know, Jesus or otherwise could and potentially can mean it's not to, it's not to say, oh, that has no purpose because there's something quite, uh, indescribable in terms of taking your breath away when you see people that sacrifice, you know, and you know it, right. It's like, the, it's, it, to me, it's the part of the, 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 the Jesus story that just is, if anybody's ever done something like that to where, or to inspire people in the circus Maximus to be mauled to death by wild animals with, with no, you know, and do so with, you know, and lovingly looking and praying for the very people that are making you happy, have you do that. That transcends language and translation and interpretation. I can't deny that and what that does in me and what I think in most humans, regardless of where they're coming from. So, I mean, so, I, I, so I think all that stuff is possible. And so, and so in the realm of kind of exploring those next, I don't want to say layers, but other aspects. Are there other parts? We, my favorites from yours is the, you know, is the, is the Genesis story there in Genesis 3 and, and changing how those things look. But is elsewhere throughout the Old Testament, what are some other kind of highlights where you came in thinking you knew the story this way and then all of a sudden, aha, <laughs> maybe this is a different way to look at that? Well, the, fun, the funny, the first thing that comes to mind is when you read Jonah, you realize it's hilarious. And boy, I never got that as a kid. <laughs> it was like, Jonah, you've got to, you know, he was terrible. And then you read the Hebrew and you're like, this is such a comedy. Like they're poking fun at him the whole time. And it's God is like, Jonah, are you joking me right now? You know, just there's this lightheartedness to it that I just thought, golly, we just puritanized that to no end, didn't we? And just sucked all the fun out of it. <laughs> um, and it actually has something really lovely to teach us about fidelity and, you know, obeying God and trusting that God actually knows what God is doing and all that stuff. But you can still do that really lighthearted. And I, I, I think that's a great example just because I don't know. I think the Hebrew doesn't take itself as seriously as we try to take the scriptures so seriously that we actually sort of undermine half of its brilliance. That was one of my, the things I thought about is just, I, I remember we had to translate Jonah and um, partly because it's sort of easier. So don't think that I'm <laughs> impressive. You're like, here's your big first thing as like a, you know, newbie or whatever. And you're like, oh, wow, this is great. Um, but I just thought, oh my word, I had no, I just, you miss so much in translation. You just miss all that tone and joking and, you know, all of those things. So I think also just in general, realizing that we are three to four translations away from the original and that should always humble us. Not that, you know, we could somehow trace it back and get all the answers because that's its own fool's errand, but it's helpful to have that humility to say, you know, the English is like not the best way to get at this essence. We have to rely on something beyond words, which is why I think Lectio Divina is a maybe a better way to read scripture than just trying to read it over your coffee like it's a letter directly to you. You know, it's like, well, invite the spirit into that and see if, you know, maybe that loosens up what we feel like we're able to be open to hearing that the scripture is saying. But the other one that came to mind, as you said, that was actually in the Genesis three text, because um, it's that word that we think meant banish and actually also can mean a benediction. And 
I have found, um, as I've talked about Genesis three with people, that that is the thing that has softened them a lot. You know, that sense of, um, gosh, to feel like God has banished us as humanity, even if we don't think, you know, if we see Adam and Eve and we think, oh, that's me too. God sent me away. I want to be close to God, you know, and here God sends me away. And that just feels like such a, an abandonment and a violation. It, se- it seems like a tragedy. Um, and so to stumble upon Ways of Lehehu and look, I looked up all the other places it was, and it was like, oh no, this is the, this word that means like, we may have had a conflict, but go in peace, my brother, go in peace, my sister, you know, um, it's good here. We're good here. And that just feels so redeeming um, for, I think, the way that so many of us as young children were taught that the story meant that something about us wasn't acceptable to God. So I think one of the gifts that just that one word um, brings to us is that sense of, okay, the, the moment that we're understanding that we have this good inclination and this, quote, evil inclination, you know, these two different drives in us we also realize that there is a wholeness there that is just beyond duality and that all of us is welcome. And it's actually not that clean anyway. So good thing, you know, um, we do good things with like a little hint of our own selfishness in it. And we do like not great things where something good sort of accidentally comes out of it to our surprise. And it's just not that clean. So this sense of God blessing us and benedicting us, um, I think is sort of our first understanding that all of us is welcome with God. And I, I think that's one of the other things that helps actually make us feel whole, you know, it helps us embody our own lives in a way where we don't feel like we have to run from our, the parts that we don't like about ourselves, which is really counterproductive. You know? And I think it's important here to, to, to state something is that this isn't an attempt to make things easier or, or to, or to make them less less stressful or, or, Hey, we're, see, we're really good. It's just, this inter- I think it actually puts more, I wouldn't say want to say pressure, but it, I guess a greater, wider opportunity now, uh, because now you're having to go forth and be more on the uh, openness, open side. You have, you have this opportunity to, to engage without such absolutes, which may sound easier, but a lot of times it can't, in my experience, it's not. I, we were talking about Alexander before and, and one of the stories or perspective he likes to tell is that when you're on the Camino and you're walking through, it's not, it's not the fun, you know, great good stuff that's really the the part where you have a chance to grow. It's that person that you don't want to talk to. It's that person that's irritating the living daylights out of you. And is it is that their fault or is that your fault? And it's not. And and even then, I think that's part of the that's part of the that narrative from before that's hanging over is like, why does there have to be fault? Why does it have to be blame? Why is there, it's again, it's that neurosis of, of, well, how am I supposed to feel special? I, I'm just trying to get back to in the good graces and I'm not, and I, and all I was, was born. And now I'm, I'm working from less than zero and the, in the, in the limited anxiety around that where, Oh, is that just, is that just the church? We're just, all right, I'm saved. And, and I guess, all right, well, let me know what's next, but I guess I'll just try to stay here in this little place. And if I don't fall from grace again, and then it just becomes this self-perpetuating uh, damnation, like you said, and, and I think it, it messes with the psyche and it messes with our perspective of what's possible. It's, I think it impacts how we look at others, but just going the other way doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be all rainbows and unicorns as well, because now, all right, well, now you have to sit with somebody who doesn't think like you do. 
and actually welcome that other to the table and, and say it's going to be okay. And they don't see Ruach the same way you do. They don't see no. Wesleyhu. Uh, I'm not going to say it right, but yeah, Wesleyhu. Wesleyhu. Yeah, <laughs> say that properly. And you know, we talked about that. We talked about some of that with with Neil. But it's in terms of con, in terms of um, I don't want to say accuracy because that's the wrong word, but. Uh, if we haven't studied four years of Hebrew, if we don't have all those resources, what's kind of a good way? Obviously, I think you know, buying anything that you've written, you know, buying anything that uh, Mr. Fox has written can help. But in terms of like where you go from a resource, if we're wanting to understand, because I can Google Hebrew, but you know, hey, original translation of Genesis, and it's like, all right, there's four billion you know results. <laughs> Who do I trust? Like, how do we? If somebody's interested in, okay, I want to jump down this and, and explore more, how would you recommend they do that in some sense? Yeah, that's actually a great question. I, I actually would say, instead of trying to figure out for yourself the Hebrew, which is a tough thing to do, I, I would even just be open to saying, read commentaries that are Jewish or Muslim on these um, scriptures that we have in common, because uh, it will really help, <laughs> you know? It really helps. And the cool thing about Judaism is that they have this long tradition of arguing about the scriptures in a way that I just so wish we would figure out how to do. Um, but, you know, there's endless midrash on, you know, tons of scriptural stories from the Hebrew scriptures. And to read them debate what they felt was important or um, difficult about these texts might even help you understand what's at play. And then, you know, um, a rabbi will know far more than search on Hebrew, understand kind of what all the language is that's happening in that text, because similarly to Greek, but I think Hebrew does a lot more. Um, there's these little plays on words and there are these little like winks that tell you that this is related to this. And just, that's just not stuff that's easy to know unless you are somebody who spends so much time in that world, you know? And so find a rabbi, you know, read what a rabbi has had to say about this. Who's really read those scriptures and, and has grappled with them. And it doesn't mean you have to agree with everything they say, but it might be a really helpful way. I think for us as Christians to get out of our assumption that we know exactly what it's saying, you know, which is again, kind of rude. Like they, it's their book before it's our book. So I always think it's good hospitality too to say, well, let's listen to what our other Abrahamic siblings have to say about this thing. Well, I feel like it comes full circle because uh, you can go Google West Texas football and barbecue and oil and you'll get all kinds of results, but to talk to somebody like yourself uh, would be a much, could provide much greater context as to what that, what that means. Cause you say those single words to me and I know the volume of what that represents. And so, right. Think, yes. So I, think, I say Friday night lights and people are like, I've seen that show. And I'm like, well, <laughs> yes, it's actually quite accurate, but you know, some things are off. Sure. Sure. <laughs> so I think it's a great place to land. I think I could talk to you for a very long time and more than anything, thanks for this. I, I hope I felt like it was a gem that was just, you know, I kind of had it in my mind what I what I was hoping and and uh, yeah and you did not fail to deliver so thank you so much for coming God, on yeah. and giving Thanks. us your I time around yes no yeah, no doubt sure. so where is is there is there a place we can find I mean I know but would you let the audience know if they want to find out more about you and connect with you where yeah, they might yeah. go yeah uh, you can I have a website danielschroyer.com that's sort of the basics um, and you can follow me on Twitter at dg schroyer I am on Instagram very minimally but I'm at danielle schroyer. And if you are interested in Buddhist and meditation stuff, I have a blog called BeASoulNinja.com that's fun. It's a Christian doing Buddhist things, which either is your thing or absolutely not. Which is fine. <laughs> um, so yeah, those are some places you can find me. Excellent. Excellent. Well, if you feel so inspired, please you know, reach out and connect with her and, and, 
and you know, let's keep this human connection thing going. But thank you again for the time. That was great. Yeah, yeah, thank you. All right, and with that, we will see you all next week as we wrap up this first series. We'd love to get some feedback from you as, as this goes through. And next week from uh, Dr. Richard Beck, and we'll bring this thing home. Thank you so much again for joining us, and we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks, and God bless. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.